but I would say if, if you spend your whole life trying to burn something down that will never burn down and then you die, uh, uh, how, how do you feel about that? Like at I some point, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I tried to burn, I, I tried to tear down a wall that I was never able to tear down. Like at some point in the process, maybe shifting your your energy towards something where at the end of your life you think i was really grateful that i expended that amount of energy on that thing uh you know i, I think people should have contemplative reflection about those hello everyone welcome back to the life after deconstruction podcast my name is anthony miller and today i'm very grateful to be able to share with you the part two discussion that i recently had with my friend stephen murphy of the mormonism with the murph podcast in this episode we talk about healing and growth after a faith crisis the experience of engaging with church apologists uh, as well as support communities uh inside and outside the edge of belief. Um, we also talk about nourishing relationships across differentiation of belief, including mixed faith marriages and other mixed faith relationships. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel, Mormonism with Murph, where Larry Saint explores the church's history and the church's truth claims. So I'm back here on part two of my epic interview with uh, Anthony Miller. Anthony, thanks for coming back. Thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. So in, in part one, we uh, talked a little about Anthony's uh, faith journey. He talked about his sort of growing up in the church, uh, his faith crisis, and what ultimately led him to lose his faith and leave the church. Then we had a really good discussion on his theory of how the Book of Mormon could have been composed, uh, you know, the mechanics of the dictation, uh, talking about maybe some of the sources or inspiration he might have been pulling from. Uh, his thoughts on historicity and apologetics. And I think it was a good, thoughtful discussion. So go back and watch part one if you haven't. Uh, we're going to now veer towards talking a little about uh, sort of like his experience, you know, post uh, losing his faith and finding sort of community and, and healing and, and happiness, and also how to navigate uh, both the mixed faith marriage and mixed faith relationships. And there's a video on, is it your YouTube channel? about navigating a mixed faith marriage. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my episodes on my podcast. It's a yes. seven and a half minute video with uh, an intro added to it. So it's awesome. about maybe eight and a half minutes long. So I'll link that in the description. I watched that. I think that's, um, and we're going to talk a little about this in the episode, but uh, yeah, it's important uh, sort of video talking about how to navigate through uh, a mixed faith marriage and some of the tools that people could apply. Uh, so we'll start off. Maybe you could talk briefly about, um, without going into too much, too many details, what it was like for you when you went through your faith crisis and first left, and and then how you were able to find sort of uh, healing, community, you know, growth, and sort of come to a place where you feel like you're thriving and and, and happy. Yeah, sure. So, um, so a faith crisis, at least my faith crisis, was very acute, and. Um, it was an existential uh, identity crisis as well as a faith crisis. So my my sense of my being, who I was, how I made sense of life, uh, uh, my roles, my reputation, my family connections, um, 
the meaning that I attributed to my spiritual experiences, every all of it crumbled. And and um, you know, people who go through a faith transition uh, related to the church uh, aren't the only ones who experience existential crisis during their lives, right? So, so you know, different people at different times have different triggers that result in an existential crisis. But for me, um, the result was uh, a very significant amount of grief um, that included times of uh, processing or traversing the depression stage of grief. Um, I experienced uh, periods of disassociation. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't answer my prayers just because I read some of the essays on the church's website. Um, what I didn't realize was that I experienced a traumatic identity crisis um, that led to a significant amount of grief and that I needed to have healing happen before I could begin to once again experience transcendent connection, love, peace, joy, grace, gratitude types of experiences. Um, and would you say within the sort of the trauma and, and depression you felt, was there also a sense of sort of anger and um, betrayal and frustration as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, programmed is probably a incendiary word, but I was, I was taught and I believed that if I lost my faith, that it had to be my fault because uh, I did something wrong. Yeah. And, and so, um, uh, so I, I experienced during that existential crisis, dark night of the soul stage, um, I experienced a significant sense of betrayal. First, I sent, sense self betrayal because, um, I applied critical thinking to all the other areas of my life, except for my faith with regard to my faith. I used that model of metaphorically setting aside things that cause dissonance or disconfirming evidence as as of books on a metaphorical shelf. And so rather than engaging with those things and and sitting with ambiguities and using words that weren't like I know, but using words like I believe or I find helpful or I hope or something like that. I felt like I needed to say that I know I needed to have certainty and that led to the metaphorical model of the shelf. Now I believe the model of the shelf is harmful. So in my view, let's not ever have a shelf. Let's approach life with epistemic humility. Let's live in the ambiguity. Let's apply critical thinking to all areas of our life. And And probably your issues and doubts and questions and not just leave them to one side. Right. We, rather than let them accumulate into something that's going to collapse on top of you, right, and cause an identity crisis, right. And so, so as I was processing the grief of that, I, I experienced a lot of self betrayal for not applying critical thinking, for having been exposed to disconfirming information uh, twenty years and more prior, and not really dealing with it, uh, and and kind of almost spiritually bypassing and setting it aside. Um, At the same time, I experienced a significant sense of betrayal uh, from the brethren. And and I need to provide context for this. 
particularly for people who have gone through faith crisis. So, so um, uh, here's the context. So in the past, in history, um, the discipline of history wasn't to provide transparent information about what happened in history. What, what was common or the discipline of history was to extract uh, faithful or polished narratives about what happened in history that are inspiring to people. So when mm-hmm. I grew up, I learned about Washington and the cherry tree, you know, and how loyal he was, right? Which is a totally made up story. Um, but that was part of history because uh, it was inspiring and patriotic. And um, growing up, I'm, I'm sure that I read a story or heard a story that um, that uh, George Washington had false teeth, you know, and that he had wooden false teeth. But what the actual history was is he did have wooden false teeth, but he also owned a lot of slaves, and he had sets of false teeth that were built out of teeth extracted from his slaves, which is not a faithful, polished historical narrative, right? No. Um, but the reason to want to leave those details out. <laughs> there's a reason to want to leave those details out. And so, in any event, the, the practice of history was to present faithful, polished narratives. And in the church, uh, what we have are individuals who are in leadership who are very, very old, uh, you know, getting older. Yeah. Uh, I think President Nelson's 98 or something now. That's right. And, and so they grew up and lived in a time when the practice of history was to present a polished narrative. And I had a different values framework in the meanings that I attributed to honesty, integrity, and transparency, particularly working in financial services. It's like, that's part of what I have to do for a living. Um, but the, the role of being honest, like, like that was one of my core values. And I thrived in Mormonism holding that core value. And then when I learned that the historical narratives in the church were polished narratives to present you know, Washington and the cherry tree level stuff or Washington maybe partially accurate, like Washington had false teeth, but he had wooden ones. Yeah, but he also had very teeth promoting version of the history you yeah. might see sanitized. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt way. I felt extremely betrayed that, for example, when I served my mission, uh that in my missionary materials. I didn't have the text from the extra first vision accounts, right? Um, <clears throat> or that I didn't have more information about how polygamy came to be, or that I didn't have information about the discrepancies between the book of the command book of commandments and the DNC, or yeah. that I or that I didn't learn how the narrative of priesthood restoration came to be like I had the film strip and later a video, the restoration of the priesthood video that told the dominant narrative that, you know, all of the priesthood was restored before 18 April 6, 1830. And everybody knew about it. And uh, everybody knew what the Melchizedek priesthood was like, I, I never learned that that narrative wasn't developed until maybe 1834. Um, I, I I didn't learn how problematic and messy that was. I didn't learn that um, a guy named Lyman uh, 
ordained Joseph to the high priesthood. He was a Campbellite minister in 1831, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever under the polished dominant narratives. So um, when I originally stumbled across the essays, what, what I initially believed is that the brethren knew at least some of this information and then they chose to withhold it to protect heritage and faith. Number one, because that's how the discipline of history was practiced before, you know, the later 1900s. Um, and so that's what they expected. But number two, it was a, a defensive posture to protect the church, to not feed information to critics. And, and when I read, as I was deconstructing, I ended up reading Elder Pactor, Elder Packer's, I ended up getting the uh, uh, Greg Prince's biography of Leonard Arrington and and read that. And I ended up reading uh, Elder Packer's talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. I did a video um, on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and I learned that Packer gave that talk probably with Leonard Arrington and Michael Quinn in the audience uh, at BYU. And it was, it was basically a public humiliation. And this is my understanding and takedown of Leonard Arrington, Richard Bushman and Michael Quinn for doing what they were doing in the church history department with Leonard Arrington as the church historian uh, prior to uh, basically Leonard Arrington being released from that calling without any, normally you, when you release someone, you notify everybody that you're released and you give a vote of thanks, like in a conference or something. Um, and it was a pretty humiliating thing for Leonard Arrington. Um, and in that talk in the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. Um, Packer expresses that the role of the historian, he, he says historians uh, idolize the truth, right? And, and he says something like yeah. that truth is sometimes not very useful. And then yeah. he compares what truth doesn't thinks. always build up or edify yeah. or uplift. Exactly. And, and what he expresses in that talk is that historians should parse and polish narratives. He didn't use these words, but that's what he was expressing in the way that, that a defense attorney would do that for one of their clients. So rather than the discipline of history being honesty, transparency, let's figure out what happened and learn from it, it was the role of the historian was to present a polished narrative that protected uh, heritage and faith. Yeah. And, and when I read that, number one, uh, that so much violated my conscience and my core moral values, like, like that you should trust the members of the church with information, right? But there, there was a certain level of presentism in that, in that Packer and the older people, they grew up in a system or with a culture where historians didn't do transparent scholarship. And it was the role of the historian was to present polished narratives. Um, but I was really angry uh, that the brethren including brethren that I trusted, like President Hinckley, chose to give me materials that I would go teach 
uh, on a mission or the correlation committee, you know, committee, we give me materials that I would choose that I, that I would teach in elders quorum, high priest group in Sunday school. And as a missionary that, that at least some people, and I perceived some of the brethren at least knowingly knew that the information was partially or entirely inaccurate. Um, but they did that to protect faith. And to me, that felt like spiritual abuse to give a narrative to someone, to have them go teach, to tell them when they experienced spirit, that that means that it's objectively true and you can trust it with them knowing that, that the narrative wasn't entirely transparent. That felt like spiritual abuse to me. Mm. And so I was very, very angry. I was angry at myself betrayed by myself, very angry at the church and the brethren, felt betrayed by them. Um, when I would go to apologists and say, help me understand this, um, more often than not, I was met with ridicule and... Uh, and about, like blame reversal. Um, blame, I, I, totally, I totally resonate with you that I, I felt uh, similar feelings of betrayal and that the church wasn't fully forthright and transparent in their history. And, you know, there's some apologists that would say, oh, well, you know, there are some quotes that allude to the seer stone or, you know, the first multiple first vision accounts have been published from the 1960s or there's dialogue and sunstone and, uh, you know, Rothstone ruling all of this scholarship and you just didn't go reading it. Um, yeah, you, you were lazy. Yeah. Either that yeah. or it was common knowledge. And my parents joined the church in 1969, right? I grew up with Bruce R. McConkie Mormonism, with Mormon doctrine, you know. Yeah, me too. What we would, you know. And so I I had I had no idea that such a thing as BYU studies or dialogue or Sunstone existed. When yeah, I learned I that Sunstone, that. yeah, when I learned that Sunstone existed, it's when they it's when they read the letter from the pulpit discouraging uh members from attending symposia which meant sunstone. They didn't say sunstone. So I read the, I read the newspaper to find out what, what are they talking about and found out that there was such a thing as sunstone. I didn't know that it existed. And, and the idea that in 1972 or 74, there was like a new era article, you know, about something uh, or some other obscure thing that said, you know, there are multiple versions of the first edition, but didn't actually print the text of those versions, you know, there's absolutely in my mind still no reason why, uh, well, I understand the reason, but in my mind, there was no valid reason as to why the different versions of the first vision didn't show up in truth restored or our heritage. So that when I was teaching gospel doctrine that we could have read them, right. You know, there, there wasn't only not the text, there was no reference to them. You know, at least there could have been a reference, but I think they should have included the versions uh, in those supplementary materials. There's no reason that they couldn't. So, so when I was seeking for help and I went to the apologists, what I found was not any sort of ministering whatsoever, uh, but it was, I would call it gaslighting and polemic attacks on my character that either I'm lying uh, or that I was lazy. And I wasn't lazy. I was totally committed to the church, right? I I would have given anything to the church. I planned my life so I could retire in my fifties and, 
and serve missions for the church for the rest of my life. I was totally committed. Uh, and, and I just, how would I know? Like I was a poor yeah, kid. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. I was a poor kid growing up. My parents divorced. We lived in a little farm shack of a house with a wooden foundation, you know, and we felt grateful that we only had to rely on the church for help with just food. I mowed lawns and delivered pizza. My mom did sewing and alterations out of the home. How, how would have I known that I could, that I could subscribe to dialogue, you know, there was no yeah. internet, you know? And so I, and so I was very, very, very upset, but as I was deconstructing, um, there, uh, a friend, still a good friend by the name of Brian Whitney, he worked, uh, he, he teaches school now. I think he lives in Brigham city, Utah. Um, he worked in the church history department as some of the essays were being prepared. Um, and he gave me some inside information on, you know, what happened as the essays were being prepared, including the race and the priesthood essay. And uh, in any event, what he shared with me was this concept or understanding of how the discipline of history used to be done and how the church kind of got behind uh, on what history meant and that, uh, eventually it caught up to them. And so he wrote a good blog post. I think it's on the blog worlds without end. And in the blog post, he, he wrote, we should stop saying they lied about history. And then he goes through and he explains how, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith was, uh, I think the grandson of Hiram Smith. Hiram Smith yeah. And uh, he was very literalist. The, the Hiram descendants, I understand, are very literalist, tending to be yeah, fundamentalists. Fundamentalists. And, and, and so he was very protective of the church. And he certainly came from a standpoint that the discipline of history was to, included to protect heritage and to protect the church from the critics. And so to hold some grace for how Joseph Fielding Smith dealt with like the 1832 account of the first vision and potentially other documents that we don't know about potentially. Um, but that's the framework. That's a conceptual framework that they were coming from. And so to hold a little bit of grace that even though I sensed a great betrayal they were coming from a standpoint that they felt like they were doing what God wanted them to do. Yeah. Uh, because that's how history was done. And, and then you've got leaders of the church like elder Packer, you know, who a lot of people felt like was authority on things of this type who in the talk, the mantle was far, far, far greater than the internet intellect um, perpetuated this idea or narrative that the role of the historian is not, is to protect faith and heritage. Yeah. So yes, significant sense of betrayal, lots of anger, lots of grief. But over time, uh, what helped me was to realize or to learn more about the motivations behind what they did. It still violated my core values. Like I wouldn't yeah, have been okay sure. with it. Um, and I, uh, I, I agree with I you. Understand where they're no. coming from. Yeah, because because whenever. I think back to when I first was in my faith crisis, similar to you, I felt betrayal. I felt like they've just lied about the history. They've whitewashed things. 
and I sort of saw the 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 leaders, the prophets and apostles, as sort of frauds, you know, intentionally uh, with sinister motives doing this. And you know, over time, and I'm with my reconstructing, coming back to faith, um, I extended more grace, and that they, I think, with good intent, whether. I don't agree with the whitewashing history, and I believe transparency, similar to you, is important. And we should know the good, the bad, and the ugly. If it's faith promoting or not, um, we should be transparent, uh, even if it doesn't build faith. Because ultimately, it's you know it's better for people to know the truth. But I can I can understand why they would want to not emphasize things that might harm faith because they want to protect people's faith because they ultimately believe. Uh, that that is true, and I, I can even extend grace that maybe Joyce Fielding Smith didn't believe the Sears Stone accounts were credible, and maybe dismissed them as erroneous. And you, you can extend some grace, not justifying it, but it can help you to to heal and not feel the same betrayal. Yeah, I mean, victim is the wrong word, but they're they're certainly products of the same system that we were a part of and yes and or that you're a part of now and and part of that system is a significant part of participation is belief affirmation uh you know you go to sunday school and talk about what we all believe you don't go to sunday school to learn about the documentary hypothesis or the synoptic problem, you know. Uh, really, we learn about that every time in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. I was. I was. Apparently, I was not in the promised land. Uh, Although, um, our, we have a Sunday school teacher in my ward, and kudos to her. She really does go above and beyond her lessons because, like, most of the time, Sunday school is just the same old questions, you know, talking about the stories. And she was, you know, tying in a wee bit of like you know, scholarship and, you know, talking about like the Greek. And I was like, this is actually, I actually learned some things from yeah. her lesson. Yeah. So kudos to her, but yeah, it's, it's not like that in, in most words. Yeah. And so uh, certainly I appreciated when either I had the opportunity to bring things in uh, when I taught or when other people did it. Um, uh, but I, I, my sense is that um you know, a lot of times former believers, uh, they accuse the brethren of like participating in a conspiracy and that they don't really believe it. Yeah. And, um, you know, Grant Palmer, uh, in his book suggests that, um, that they know it's not true and that it took, uh, Elder Uchtdorf a little bit longer than the rest of them to realize that it wasn't true. But I, I heavily influenced my my view because his book and a lot of Grant Palmer was a big thing that caused me to lose my faith the first time, yeah. as well as other critics. Yeah, I, my sense is that uh, I I think they believe that it's true. Uh, they know that they have. I think I don't believe any of them has seen Jesus. You know, other than maybe a dream or something, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, so um, I think they know that when they talk in veiled language to try to suggest to believers, members of the church, that they have been visited by Jesus or seen him or something, you know, to me that is dishonest. Um, but I I do believe 
uh, and hold grace that they believe that that is what God would have them do. And they, and they probably do believe that what they've experienced is representative of reality. Yeah. Uh, and have their own spiritual experiences and yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So until, until, you know, for someone like me or somebody like you that has gone through a faith crisis there, what it tends to do is result in more epistemic humility. I mean, hopefully it does. I mean, some people yeah. stay really black and white thinking, but hopefully it leads to work that increases epistemic humility um, and being open to the idea that some of the truth cart, uh, Patrick Mason in his fair Mormon talk referred to the truth cart that was overloaded. Some of the things in the truth cart aren't um, don't belong in there. Um, my sense is un until you had three or four of the most senior members of the Quorum of the 15 go through some level of faith transition or faith crisis, that um, there's nothing materially that's going to change uh, in terms of, you know, introducing more nuance to the system. And, you know, I think we see some of that from Elder Uchtdorf. Sometimes we see more nuance than other times from him. Sure. I think sometimes we see that with Elder Holland. You know, sometimes he'll give a talk about you know all the seats in the choir and things yeah, like try that. Try to be more inclusive and you know, communities yeah. and they've done things not in harmony with church policy or even doctrine. Yeah. And yeah, but then other times, then he'll double down on the more. You know, you have to go over, you know, or through the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, or other kinds of literalistic things, you know, and and so, you know, are some of the Quorum of the Fifteen have they experienced some shifts in their the level of literalist beliefs that they had during their life? It's possible. Um, Surely, uh, now they're aware of a lot. You know, they would have read through the Gospel topics essays. They'd be aware yeah. of probably many of the things that's causing people to lose faith and go through a faith crisis. You know, they may not be aware of all, you know, everything in scholarship and all the criticisms, but they, I'm sure aware of quite a, quite a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was it Christofferson that quoted N.T. Wright? I can't remember. One of them quoted N.T. Wright in the most recent conference. Uh, Christofferson in the past has quoted uh, David Bakavoy. Um, I understand that um, that uh, before the Gospel Topics essays came out, uh, there was a faith crisis report with chronicles that was prepared based on a survey that John DeLynn did with some others, and it was packaged and presented to President then President Uchtdorf uh, by Marlon Jensen. And I understand that um, President Uchtdorf read all of those uh, accounts of the Chronicles and the Faith Crisis Report. And that preceded that talk in October of 2013 uh, of Come Join With Us, where he admits mistakes and he says that it's just not a simple thing as to why people lose their belief. And, you know, it was a very conciliatory talk. And, and my understanding is that that was after he read some of the difficult things. So, and I know Ron Rasband, Ron Rasband was one of my bishops when I was in grad school at University of Utah. And, and I, I think very highly of him. 
Um, but I know that Ron has been involved, or Elder Razman, has been involved uh, and interacted with many of the difficult information, much of the difficult information as well, because Hans Matson, when he went through his faith crisis, uh, counseled with Ron Rasband when Ron oh. was in uh, the first quarter of the 70. Um, and so they're, they're aware of a lot of the things. Um, and uh, Brian Whitney that I mentioned before, he explained that when the race and the priesthood essay uh, before it was published, um, it had to be unanimously approved by every single member of the Quorum of the Fifteen, and uh, and the Church History Department published it to the website within minutes of that approval uh, being voted on, uh, in part because they were concerned that somebody might change their mind, so they just no. got it out there. So, so all of the Quorum of the Fifteen, at the very least, have read and voted on the essays. Now, how much of like what what we talked about in the last episode, you know, do they understand about biblical scholarship and Deutero Isaiah or the long ending of Mark or that some of the letters attributed to Paul weren't actually written by him, you know, or the book of or, or the book Revelation in the New Testament wasn't a prophecy about today, but it was about what was happening at the time it was written. <clears throat> I have no idea how much of that stuff they know. Um, my, my sense is that they probably don't know a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and they're not uh, scholars. They're not uh, experts on many of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, elder Ballard, uh, yeah, so that just came to my mind. Yeah. Referred to that. Like we're general authorities, you know, and we go to scholars when we want to understand things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of people who experience significant sense of betrayal. I experienced it, you experienced it, and, and it's easy to point that to uh, the brethren, and certainly there is some, some responsibility there. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, but understanding uh, how and why these things happen and the system that it's a part of uh, was, was very helpful for me as I processed the grief and the sense of trauma, my faith crisis and deconstructed church history and biblical scholarship and eventually reconstructed meaning in my life. That's awesome. Would you like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you've navigated your, your mixed faith marriage with your wife? Obviously you don't need to share anything that's too personal, but you've got a video about it and, and also maybe other relationships, you know, friends, other family members and, um, how you have navigated through, you know, your differences in belief and any advice to those people who are going through a faith crisis or who have lost their faith and how they can interact with family members, friends in a way that doesn't have to impair the relationships. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I, I would say um, among the first things that I would share with someone who's processing a faith crisis is um, is it's helpful to understand what they're experiencing as grief. Um, and it's true that their countenance has changed because they're experiencing grief. And some of the their believing friends and family are going to have the propensity to interpret your change of countenance as, as Satan uh, or as you being deceived or as you 
losing the spirit. Some great, yeah, losing the spirit. But but what it is is that you're experiencing grief and you're experiencing a loss of trust, potentially an identity crisis in addition to a faith crisis. And 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 it takes work and and help from others to process severe grief. And there's something about grief in that that people tend to believe that you know maybe if grief encapsulates all of your being that grief work is to process the grief so that over time it gets smaller and smaller and then it goes away um but that's not how grief work works um grief uh might start out encapsulating your being but the way grief work works is that you put in work to expand to the being that you are so that the grief becomes a smaller and smaller relative percentage or component of the of the being that you are and the oh. truth of the matter is, is the grief never actually ever fully goes away it's a, the, our being our being grows and developmentally and enlarges there's a few things about that is some people get really upset when they get surprised by some new thing that triggers a new thing to unpack, a new thing to deconstruct, a new grief. But that's just part of the developmental process of deconstruction that's important in, as part of grief work. There's another thing about grief that's really important that I think it's helpful to understand is that as people heal and grow and process the grief, and and they expand the being that they are um, in the future they can actually use that grief almost as a superpower and that they can ex- access it and interact with other people with an enhanced degree of empathy that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do uh, in a way that can really make a difference in the lives of others so someone who has grief from a lost spouse like that grief never fully goes, it doesn't go away. But as they grow and they heal and they move forward in their life, at times, if they encounter someone who's experiencing grief from a loss of a spouse uh, or a death of a child, they they can access the grief of their experience and, and exponentially enhance the sense of empathy and connection that they can provide to, to that yeah. other person. Yeah, like mourning with those who mourn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And part of mourning with those who mourn is having things to mourn yourself. Right? Yeah. And uh, so, on, like the one blessing, if I were to say, that's come from my faith crisis has been, I feel like I, I, I fully understand, or although people's faith crisis are all different, I understand the pain and the issues that people wrestle with and the feelings they have that in a way I don't think I could understand had I have not gone through uh, a faith crisis. It's it it's true. I, there, it I mean, you. there. I think there are some people who are active believing members of the church who, through a lot of work, have developed some capacity for empathy for those yeah. who have gone through a faith crisis. But it's kind of uncommon in my experience. Um, my good friend who was my stake president when I was going through my faith crisis, my good friend who was my bishop who I counseled with, they they just couldn't even remotely conceptualize what I was experiencing because neither of them had had 
an existential crisis. Neither of them gone through a faith crisis. Neither of them had in their lives experienced the depth of grief that I was traversing at the time. And so they did the best that they can't could. But what I needed to heal uh, is I needed to find other people who could sit with me in my story, um, probably people who had gone through a similar process of grief themselves, whether it was a faith crisis or other some other kind of grief. And and Brene Brown, Brene Brown talks about holding the hand of a stranger or ministering presence. Um, in psychology, they call it active listening. Um, but to sit with someone to to be with them, to validate their experience and their story um, goes a very long way to helping people process trauma and grief. And that works in Alcoholic Anon- Alcoholics Anonymous. It works, um, there are like camps for children who have lost a parent or a sibling to death, that they go to a camp and they're around other people who have gone through, other kids who have gone through a similar experience. And that goes a long way towards their healing. And so at least for me, for my experience was um, the relief that I found and the healing and the growth came from going and participating in uh, in uh, progressive and post-Mormon support groups. Uh, when I was in the midst of the dark night of the soul, um, the angry ones uh, were too charged for me. Like mm-hmm. ex-Mormon Reddit wasn't helpful for me. Mormon story, Mormon stories, podcast community on Facebook was too much for me. I found a group called, it's now called waters of Mormon. It was called a thoughtful faith on mm-hmm. Facebook. Um, and, uh, I was fortunate to, um, uh, get a chance to visit with Lindsay Hansen park when I was in the dark night of the soul. Uh, about six weeks into my faith crisis, she was visiting her best friend in Billings, Montana. Lindsay Hansen Park recorded the podcast uh, Year of Polygamy, and she's the executive director now of Sunstone. And she had heard, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of stories like mine. But when I was six weeks into my dark night of the soul experience, and I couldn't find anyone that could help me. It just so happens that she was uh, visiting her best friend here in Billings and saw a post that I made in the what was the A Thoughtful Faith uh, Facebook group. And she says, no way, I'm in Billings. Like, we should go to breakfast together. And so, you know, the next morning I met with her on a Friday morning, you know, at a IHOP over pancakes and shared my story with her. And the way she was able to empathize with and hold my story, that ministering presence, um, was huge. Like, it gave me relief from the dark night of the soul, at least temporarily. I, I didn't cry myself to sleep that night uh, after, after meeting with her. So over time, participating in support communities was really helpful for me. So what I would suggest is that if someone is processing a faith crisis, to find people who can hold your story. And yeah. there, maybe there are going to be increasing numbers of people like you who are inside who have gone through the experience that can provide ministering and holding the hand of a stranger metaphorically. Uh, when I went through it, I didn't, I couldn't find anyone on the inside back seven years ago in Billings, Montana, uh, who could mentor me or sit with me in my experience, but I needed that to be able to process it. 
and have confidence that there was light on the other side uh, uh, of my experience. Um, from the outside, uh, my sense is members, families, and friends are going to perceive a shift in faith as very threatening. And yes. the narrative, narr- yeah, because you're maybe you're venting about something that they hold sacred, and that'll feel like a personal attack to them, and so that's not helpful. So it's generally not helpful to vent about the weeds of things to uh, believers. Uh, it, it'll cause them to want to turn off and yeah. just use your hostile, and they'll not want to listen um, when, when you're in that the angry stage. And they can perceive. You know, I remember when I first went through my faith crisis and stepped away from church, and a lot of people you could sense were you know fearful about wanting. They didn't want to know. You know what's what's caused it. You know maybe some did, but uh, there's there's that fear. You know if if I hear what they have to say, this could affect me, and it's almost like a poison. So stay away. Yeah, in my in my ward back in 2016, uh, I couldn't find anyone who had read the essays, and so I I started just briefly asking about them at church, and and there were members of our ward that didn't believe that they were authorized and they actually started referring to me as the apostate because I was asking for help and I was asking about the essays and, and they did it to my face and they did it behind my back to the extent that it became toxic. I couldn't, couldn't attend anymore because I was in grief. I was asking for help. Um, it's probable that I was speaking with emotionally charged language because I sense betrayal, but I needed oh, help. Normal. Yeah. Yeah. I needed ministering and it became toxic for me to attend. Yeah. And I hold grace for what they were experiencing, right? They didn't know that the essays were authorized. They didn't, they, you know, many of them had never seen a faith crisis before, particularly of one of their leaders. Um, but uh, it was very, very un- unhelpful. And, and you're probably bringing up questions and information that made them uncomfortable. Very They've uncomfortable. Had, maybe hadn't heard of some of it before. And yeah. Oh, I believed the I believed a lot of the stuff in the essays had been anti-Mormon lies, right? Yes. And and so when I brought them up and said, hey, these are on the church's website, I mean, many of the people in my ward thought they were anti-Mormon lies. You mm-hmm. know, maybe the church's website got hacked or like there were apostate people on the church history department that did this without the brethren's knowledge or something like that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I had a similar sort of reaction whenever I first learned from uh, one of my family members, their concerns with church history and Joseph Smith. And when they first started telling me things, I was like, no, there's no way this is true. You know, about uh, you know, the seer stoner polygamy or, you know, uh, multiple accounts of the first vision. And then whenever I, yeah, check gospel topics essays, check fair Mormon. That's when I was like, oh, it's actually validating what, 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 what I first thought were just anti-Mormon lies and told to yeah. stay away from. Yeah. So a lot of times when people are going through faith crisis, they want to feel, they want to unpack the weeds with their believing friends and family <clears throat> for a few reasons. One thing I think that we want to feel validated, like, yes like validate my pain. Right. And so we like word vomit all over them kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, emotionally. Charged. Regurgitate the CS letter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not helpful. 
Um, <laughs> the other, the other thing is maybe we think, well, maybe some, I can find somebody else who knows about this and they have a satisfying answer or satisfying reconciliations to these things. So maybe mm-hmm. we share for that reason. Um, sometimes we want to feel validated, like, um, uh, you need to know this and I'm going to take you out of the church, which is unhelpful. Like I think yeah. people are going to unpack when they're ready to unpack. It's not helpful to try to crash their shelves. No. Um, so, um, uh, and I find, and, and we can touch on this maybe in a week, but I find with, um, you know, my own family members or, you know, my wife's um, complete, you know, TBM. I don't want to talk too much about her, but there's been times in my faith journey, even since coming back where I've had, frustrations issues and doubts and there's times where I've been emotional sharing with her my issues or concerns and it's done more harm than good and the times where I've discussed with her a particular topic in a way that's um, almost like just giving the almost like in a robotic way just the here's the issue here's what apologists say here's what critics might say and that sort of it and not trying to get emotional about it and you know if she asks like well what's your episode about and I find that a more productive conversation because they've not felt threatened or attacked in, in the way that I've shared sort of a topic or issue. Yeah, it's hard to do when you're raging. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway, uh, I think it's helpful for people to deconstruct uh, with individuals that it's helpful to deconstruct with. And that's usually not going to be the believers. And of course, on the inside, they're going to go, you're just rehearsing your doubts with all these other people, you know, that are all raging. Um, But part of processing grief and trauma is the deconstruction process. Like if you just try to skip it, it's going to fester. Like eventually it's going to show itself someday. Yeah. Uh, If you try to reconstruct a bunch of shelves, like, there's a high probability those shelves are going to crash again rather than just dealing with the ambiguity and dealing with things with more epistemic humility. So, so I, I would, I would say there are a couple of things that are super helpful. One is uh, uh, David Osler wrote a book called bridges. He's a data scientist who's since retired, he's been a Bishop stake president, mission president. And uh, he's probably one of the few, uh, active believing members of the church who hasn't gone through a faith crisis, who understands faith crisis. And his book is fantastic. I've bought multiple copies and I give them out as gifts. You know, if people, I say to, like I said to my stake president, I'm like, I have a gift for you. It's a book. It's distributed through Deseret Book. It's from David Osler. Uh, It's called Bridges. If I gave it to you as a gift, would you read it? And he said, yes. So I gave it to him as a gift and he read it. Um, and I think, I think that was helpful. Um, so that's good. John Ogden has a book called when Mormons doubt. That's really helpful. And, uh, my friend, Chris Kimball, uh, recently wrote a book, uh, called living on the inside of the edge that I also think is very helpful. Um, my friend, Rob Terry, he used to go by Randall Bowen, uh, as a pseudonym, but his name is Rob Terry. He has a blog called Church is True and did a podcast series, a Church is True podcast series, where he goes through CS letter kinds of topics 
and explains how he reconciles them still as a nuanced uh, believer in the church. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, those are some things that could be resources for believers. Um, I think they're also good ways to, as believers, to have more understanding. That's one sort of side motivation for my channel, what I'm doing. One is to really confront, navigate my way through, but for people to have more understanding towards um, the issues, awareness of some of these uh, controversial things in church history or things that the church's truth claims, but to maybe have understanding towards critics or those people who lose their faith and to see, ah, I can actually understand why they might come to this conclusion. I may come to a different one, but I can understand why they've left, why they no longer believe. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are apologists of the church who uh, know the information and uh Maybe they even agree with me on a lot of the biblical scholarship, and uh, they can appreciate, empathize, and understand why I would come to the conclusions that I do, even though they come to a different conclusion, engaging with all the material. Yeah. yeah and, and those kinds of apologists, the interaction with them has been helpful. And mm-hmm. then there are other apologists that have the more polemic tone, like, you know, you're looking at this as a childish way. You know, you were just lazy, you know, the, that kind of a personal attack thing. Totally yeah. not helpful. No, um, it, it just, um, well, you can share your thoughts, but I think it just provokes people. It creates more divisions, less understanding, less empathy. Uh, it, it creates that us versus them mentality, this polarization. And often yeah. what I've seen as well is you try to personally attack the person um but you know if you say things like oh they've been deceived they're they're apostate they're um you know they've been overcome by satan and you can do all these things to just dismiss and discredit them so you don't have to acknowledge or confront what are they saying what are their arguments what are their reasons and i think it's it it doesn't promote understanding and i don't think it's good for especially relationships like if it's family members friends um, and that happens and it's really sad. I've been very fortunate that me and my family members have still been able to have good relationships despite our, our differences. But it, it's a pity that that happens and the lack of respect and understanding. Yeah, I, I don't know if it started with Hugh Nibley, but certainly it's a common approach in traditional apologetics to uh, kind of ridicule people who have questions and oh, yeah. personally attack a critic or a doubter. Um, and so I, I think where there are apologists that choose that approach, maybe it's because that's been modeled to them. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not quite sure um, where they come up with the idea that that could be helpful. Um, and then there are apologists like Patrick Mason, who, you know, and there are others like him who hold a I lot of space. Even- yeah. yeah, like the Givens who hold a lot of space, you know, for people, even if they differ, disagree with them, but do it without ridiculing, uh, you know, or gaslighting is probably an overused term, but it, it does happen. Like, no, mm-hmm. we never taught that. I'm like, what? Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. That. Teach that and and I've noticed that at times with, with apologists and, uh, and I resonate more with people who have left because of my my experience with the faith crisis as well. And I, I've seen that as well at times 
uh, gaslighting from some apologists or trying to blame uh, critics or ex-members. And one of the things that's been actually really nice about some of the interviews I've conducted is I've had some people like uh, Brian Hales or Stephen Harper almost uh, validate the questions I've been asking. Like these are really good, thoughtful questions. And they're really no different to questions that critics would raise. Maybe it's the way I ask them. Um, but I think it's acknowledging that some of these questions, these are good, important questions, important issues, um, and they need to be considered and valued. And you shouldn't attack the person, no matter what their motives are. Um, but look at the question that they're asking. And most of the time, it's because they're they're hurting or they they really are trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly agree with that, but I also would hold grace that some of these people just get barraged, some of these apologists get barraged with people acting in bad faith or when they're yes. in a really emotionally charged stage over and over and over and over again. So it's really I mean, hard. probably heard it so many times as yeah. well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not naive to that. There's probably, there are people that would have uh, probably not bad, you know, bad motives, you know, intent. Um, yeah. But I think for the most part, I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and that they're probably trying to act in good faith and yeah. sincere yeah. questions they're wrestling with. But I think sometimes yeah. you can decipher those who just want to bash and attack and ridicule versus those who, like since doing my channel, I've had people reach out to me with really tough questions, concerns, issues, similar ones that I've had. And you can see that they're they're just desperately wanting help or validation or, or solutions. Yeah. But if you're one of those, here I am defending or at least holding grace for some of the traditional apologists that do the most unhelpful thing. Um, how do you discern? How do you discern when someone comes to you with an emotionally charged question, whether it's in good faith or bad faith? Like I don't, I don't. And in, when you get so many, how how do you discern? How do you know that? I, I don't know. I, I don't like opinion. how they respond, but I have grace that they probably don't have the ability to discern. And in my view, I personally feel like whether or not I may think that they're acting in good faith or not, or sincere or not, I I feel like if you're following Jesus, you shouldn't judge or condemn and just uh, give people the benefit of the doubt that they're acting in, in good faith. And especially if you know that it's a valid question, if it's not a great question, then provide the answer. But I think everyone's questions should be respected and acknowledged, you know, and if, if if you have information to counter it, then I think you present it in a way that's kind and respectful and validating. Yeah, well, I'm on team Murph then, because I agree <laughs> with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so a person going through faith transition they're they're going to want to deconstruct that's very helpful it's part of the process don't let it overwhelm your life uh look for people who can minister to you uh who can you know hold the hand of a stranger thing um realize that this is a developmental journey learn about uh faith development read brian mclaren's faith after doubt uh learn about uh fowler's stages of faith yeah. realize that this is a de developmental process you know it's actually a helpful thing we can we can be better we can hold more grace for people we can hold more nuance uh and and, and grow forward um there are local support groups across the world uh and usually they tend to show up in places where there, there are a lot of members of the church because then they're more 
former believers of the church. Mm-hmm. You can find them on uh, mormonspectrum.org. You can find them on Thrive Beyond Religion. Uh, I think that's a .org too. They have in-person maps. Um, you can go to the Salt Lake City Sunstone Symposium uh, and go to some of the breakout sessions that talk about communicating across faith and belief or living on the liminal or outside edge uh, of, of your community, either inside or outside the edge, things like that, that, that can be helpful, but hold some grace for yourself and realize that this is a developmental process. That's going to take time. And a lot of times my sense is you're not going to find some people will, but I think most people aren't going to find satisfying answers that put them exactly back in the level of orthodox literalist belief that they had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they might find satisfying answers mm-hmm. uh, or they might not that help them at some point move forward in their own developmental uh, journey. Yeah. So a few things uh, I shared with you and you, you're going to share that uh, episode on my podcast. Uh where I share the video that I did with my wife, but I wanted to touch on a few of those things, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. So, um, so uh, one thing that I would share, and my wife would be uh, okay with this. Um, one thing that my wife and I learned is that we grew up with very different versions of Mormonism. So I, mm-hmm. my parents converted to the church in 1969 when I was three years old, and I grew up with very, you know, Benson, Hinckley, Packer, McConkie, Mormonism. You know, I went to Cleon Skousen workshops that, you know, were almost John Bircher political and constitution divine scripture related and so forth. So that's the version of Mormonism that I, that I grew up with. Um, in our local uh, Mormon Spectrum group, we have a couple in their late 60s uh, who are in our group, and they grew up with David O. McKay Mormonism. And I'm like, huh, tell me about that. And they said, well, under David O. McKay, uh, there were no worthiness interviews. The bishop was kind of the father of the ward, and it was just kind of a community. And our criticism of Catholics were, you have to go through your priest to like confess and access God. We don't have to do that in our church, like we don't have to go to our Bishop to confess. Like we just repent to God. Right. That was the version of Mormonism under David O. McKay. Under David O. McKay. It was. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. And then after David O. McKay, there was a huge shift to uh, Joseph Fielding Smith Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then, then we had a, a series of others that tended to be more literalistic maybe maybe spencer kimball was less than than uh ezra taft benson but but overall it was way more structured more literalistic and um so this couple explained that they grew up with the as david o mckay mormons so when the church shifted to joseph fielding smith harold b lee uh ezra taft benson spencer w kimball mormonism they nuanced it. They didn't totally buy into it. Um, and they stayed in the church until when I was serving as high priest group leader, they left the ward. I thought it was my fault, but it, it wasn't. They just, it didn't work for them to be in the church anymore, but they explained that they had a very different version of Mormonism. So I went home to my wife and I'm like, let me share with you what our friends shared about David O. McKay Mormonism. 
And my wife shared with me, oh, yeah, I totally am a David O. McCain Mormon. I'm like, what? How could you be a David O. McCain Mormon? <laughs> she says, well, my, my parents were David O. McCain Mormons, and they raised me as a David O. McCain Mormon. Like, yeah. They probably didn't have a copy of McConkie's Mormon Doctrine in their home. They probably didn't. Uh, and the way they engaged with General Conference was different than the way I engaged with General Conference. So my wife and I were in a mixed faith marriage even before my faith crisis, and I didn't totally realize it. And yeah, you have different, um, yeah, like the, the way you view like prophet, scripture, doctrine, because uh, I've seen that as well, like w w with my wife and the way I would have viewed, you know, scripture and revelation so direct, so literalistic, a prophet can never lead you astray. A prophet can, can't teach false doctrine or yeah. there can't be discrepancies or contradictions in scripture like that's that can't happen or revelation is super direct god speaking to them and she's like yeah. what you think god's actually literally speaking to them? like doesn't happen like that I'm like what like like what sort of mormonism did you what grow church up? are you in <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so one thing that i've really learned as i've gone through this whole process is there are many different versions of mormonism that people grew up with and how people react to difficult information disconfirming information and faith crisis is significantly affected by the version of Mormonism with which they grew up. Yeah. The things that they were exposed to on top of how they're built as individuals. Like, are they analytical? Are, are you know, do they think linearly or abstractly? Like, how are they built affects yeah. their experience, um, but also how the version of Mormonism with which black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times I find that. The, the more literalist believers that had the more brittle box of what Mormonism meant tend to be the ones more likely to experience a more acute a faith faith crisis. And yeah. then and then they we have a propensity to impute to the believers who haven't gone through a faith crisis that their version of Mormonism is the same box that ours was that was brittle yeah. and crumbled on us. And and like you were talking about with your wife, um, that that tends to cause issues in relationships when people are going through their faith crisis because everybody assumes that their version of Mormonism, not everyone, but a lot of us assume that our version of Mormonism is the version. Right one. Yeah. Mormonism, right? <laughs> Mine's the real Mormonism. <laughs> yeah, right. This and, distorted version you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to share the thing that uh, some of the things from the video that I did uh, about our mixed faith marriage. Um, one of the suggestions that I received uh, when I was early in my faith crisis is to double and triple down on attentive, undemanded expressions of love and emotional intimacy to my wife in her primary love language. This was difficult to do when I was processing grief, um, but I did it. And it proved very helpful because our marital relationship and our connection got stronger and it grew. And it was helpful for my wife so that she could experience it as I was incrementally stepping away from belief in the church, that I wasn't stepping away from her because she felt the emotional connection. It also increased her capacity to distinguish our marriage uh, uh, from our ceiling so that our marriage was an independent emotional intimacy and connection separate of how I viewed the ceiling uh, that we had. At the same time, it was helpful for me because while I was unpacking and deconstructing church history and sometimes felt betrayed and a sense of anger, increased my capacity to distinguish her from the church so that I 
so that I wasn't imputing my sense of frustration on the church, on her, because she chose to be active yes. in the church. Yeah. So, um, so uh, sometimes when a person experiences a faith transition, uh, there's a diminishment of emotional intimacy and trust with believing spouse, family, friends. Um, and, and so one of my suggestions from a personal experience is, is to put in significant work to nourish that intimacy with family, spouse, and friends on, on the relationships that matter to you. Um, you feel that betrayal towards the church and they can also feel some betrayal towards the person who might lose their faith and they're, they're process, processing their own grief. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So my wife's processing her own grief that, you know, she was sure that I was going to resign from the church right away. It took me almost two years to make that decision, but she was sure I was going to resign right away. So she felt grief and betrayal as well as I was going through my faith crisis. So investing in attentive expressions of emotional intimacy to nourish that relationship was has been critical to our mixed faith relationship. And I would recommend that people processing a faith crisis do the same thing where they have mixed faith re- relationships. It'll be helpful for them as the person who's going through faith transition. It'll be helpful for the believers as well. Yeah. So the second thing is uh, to use a spiritual values exercise or some other method to identify uh, common and differentiated spiritual values, preferences, and interests. And mm. so um, my wife and I found that for us, we enjoy things like listening to the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett, uh, books from Brene Brown, things about uh, secular, the secular application of Buddhist principles from Jack Kornfield and Eckhart Tolle, things about faith and growth like Brian McLaren's book, Faith After Doubt, and he has a podcast too. Um, and so, um, it, it's to find things that we can nourish together and experience spirit connection, love, peace, joy, and transcendent connect connection together while also realizing that we each have differentiated things that, that fill us. And so by nourishing the together things, then the, the believer might experience spirit when they're around the faith transitioner and feel less threatened because they experienced spirit even yeah. though a person's going through a faith transition. Um, and it's going to help the faith transitioner to experience and manifest what you would call the fruits of the spirit uh, or spiritual values at the same time. Like love and goodness and kindness and focusing more on your commonalities and spiritual values than fo- yeah. focusing on your differences. Yeah. And, and trusting that we each have things that feed us different separately that are differentiated, but we do have things that we share together. So one of the things that my wife and I did when I was in the early stages of my faith crisis, about a year or so into it, is uh, there there was a, a woman that had been a longtime friend. Uh, her husband was in a nursing home. Her daughter is the same age as our son, and she's disabled. And um, they they lived in a, like it might have been a 1954 or 56 mobile home, like way out on the edge of town, and it was falling apart. When I was high priest group leader, we would go and do repairs to because it was it would leak or it was so old that it 
you know, if the wind blew too much, it like maybe would torque a little bit. So if they opened the window, they couldn't get it closed. It, it was a mess. And so one thing that my wife and I did is we decided to do is we created an irrevocable trust and we raised uh, a little bit more than $26,000 uh, from believers, from non-believers. I got uh, a former Relief Society president to be a co-trustee with the woman's home teacher of the trust. And we raised money and we bought uh, a replacement trailer home for uh, a lot newer, like early 2000s, uh, bigger, more energy efficient. I got um, I got volunteers uh, to do electrical work, to do um, uh, the dirt work, uh, to crush and haul off and salvage the old trailer and so forth. It was a very meaningful experience to us. It was something that uh, that my wife and I could do and share together as a shared spiritual activity to try to make a difference in the life of this life of this woman and her disabled adult daughter. Um, and as well as it, it allowed me to engage with my believing uh, friends in a way that was not threatening to them. Yeah. Maybe there were a few that stopped calling me the apostate, you know, and <laughs> and participated in that and helped me with the move, helped me stage the what was in the house into my enclosed trailer while we were all doing the dirt work and stuff. And uh and help me go in and clean the new trailer so it was ready to move in. So um, that would be an example of a shared spiritual language that my wife and I shared together that was very meaningful for us, but we also were able to include uh, believing members and former members in the community in that in that effort. That's awesome. So, thanks. So the third thing is I, I share, think of black licorice as a metaphor. So my wife loves black licorice and I can't stand it. I, I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, right. They're all either, they either love it or they don't. And I, but I, I explained that neither of us experience any sort of emotional or spiritual turmoil, turmoil or pain over our differentiated preferences for black licorice. Like I, I'm not, it's not painful that my wife likes back black licorice. Right. Mm. And it's not painful to her that I don't. And so then I say, of course, there are beliefs that we individually hold as human beings where we enmesh and entangle with our individual egos and our personal senses of identity that go way beyond preferences like black licorice. Yeah. And it can be painful to disentangle and differentiate in those things. Um, but I say in the end, and this is kind of a Buddhist thinking idea, um, the, these things are all just black licorice. They're, they're preferences they're things that we find helpful that maybe somebody else doesn't. And so if I think if we can find and nourish and develop intimacy, relationship, trust, and belonging in things outside black licorice, that maybe we can increase our capacity to choose for it to be okay that our spouse likes black licorice, yeah. uh, meta metaphorically or literally. So in a mixed faith relationship, sometimes it's painful for them if we don't believe in that the temple ceiling is a real thing. And maybe we have our time that they don't believe that transparency in church history is an important thing. And we get all upset about it. But in the end, it, it, these are personal preferences. They're, they're black licorice. So the next thing I suggest is to talk about your biggest 
and deepest fears with each other so that you can face them together rather than catastrophize them individually. So my wife shared with me that she was fearful that if I could change how I felt about the church, even though I deeply loved it and it was part of my very identity and being, that I could also all of a sudden shift how I believed, how I felt about her. And one thing that was a big concern for her was that she was fearful that as I developed emotional and spiritual intimacy with women who were on the same journey as me, like in support groups, uh, uh, other people navigating faith crisis, she was fearful that there was a risk that she might lose me, that I would develop relationship or intimacy uh, that would just go beyond a support group thing. So that was a fear of hers. But probably the biggest fears of hers was that as I renegotiated and reconstructed uh, behavioral and moral boundaries, like what that it was okay to drink wine with dinner, you know, uh, or something like that. Um, she was concerned that as I renegotiated and reconstructed moral and behavioral boundaries, that there could be problems for our marriage with regard to infidelity or problematic alcohol use, for example. And, right. and some, sometimes we see that in the post-Mormon community where, where the rest of the world tests behavioral boundaries with regard to sexuality, for example, in maybe high school or college. A lot of people in the, in our, in the church community never test those behavioral boundaries. So they're like adolescents, you know, at bay, and then they go through a faith crisis. And when they're in the midst of processing grief and trauma, then they also decide to test I'm behavioral sure. boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. As if they were adolescents, but they're in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, and that can be a big problem. So that was a big fear for her. Um, uh, Actually, the biggest fear she wanted me to make sure that I explained was her fear was that I wouldn't have the capacity to hold space for her differentiated beliefs, and that if she didn't follow me, that I would choose to not be with her. And my biggest fears were in many ways similar to hers, is that I was fearful that that she might someday decide that she couldn't be with me anymore if uh, if I didn't believe in the truth claims of the church or if I eventually chose to resign my membership. So it was helpful for us, instead of holding those fears individually and catastrophizing them and having that affect our depth of vulnerability, trust, and authenticity in our relationship, it's helpful to give words to those fears and talk about them. So we could yeah. talk about establishing boundaries and and talk about what our fears were and things like that that would build your connection understanding empathy emotional intimacy during that time 100 percent, yes it it was it was vital uh to our relationship so um along the way we each had to put in a significant amount of individual work so that we could have confidence that we would both be okay if either of us chose to not be in the marriage. So um, our original marriage was based on a commitment to each other and to God. When my conceptualization about it having something to do with God shifted, um, uh, we found ourselves renegotiating what our marriage was. Like, why are we married? Like, and, uh, and sometimes it ends in divorce, that renegotiation. With ours, we decided and we chose that we really wanted to be together. Um, But part of that process was having it be a choice 
where we each felt like we had the individual autonomy and that we would each be okay if either of us decided to end the marriage, that we would be okay. So we sat down and talked about if we decided to get a divorce, how would we divide assets? How would we divide income? What would we do and what we would do next? And we both needed to have that discussion, number one, so we didn't have to worry about it anymore, but number two, so that we could both approach the relationship as individual autonomous people choosing to be together. Um, and that was really important. So um, there was another thing that was very significant, probably a biggest inflection point to our mixed faith marriage. And this is kind of a Buddhist principle in terms of living with ambiguity and uncertainty. But there are things that are are not okay for me, and there are things that are not okay for her. So I'm an extrovert. I want to go out and try to help people. I want to try to make a difference in the world. And I talk about my faith transition publicly, right? My wife is very much a private person. She's an introvert. Uh, and uh, she doesn't want me to tell her story. So I only share as much as what she's told me is okay. Yeah. So it's never never going to be okay for her that I'm out here doing a podcast with you. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's never going to be okay for me that she's made a conscious choice to not go deeper than studying the gospel topics essays. You know, she's chosen not to study biblical scholarship. She's chosen to not to unpack more than just the essays. Yeah. Um, that's never going to be okay to me because I don't feel like I'm fully validated or understood in my experience because she doesn't go study what was significant to my experience. Um, but the the Buddhist idea is that we have made a choice that it's okay that not okay things exist because we want to be together. And and if I would if she was holding out on this idea that at some point I wouldn't talk about this stuff. Or if I was holding out on this idea that at some point she would study biblical scholarship or something, it it just wasn't going to be helpful. No. Like we needed we needed to be able to choose for it to be okay that not okay things exist. And once we acknowledged this individual autonomy and choice that we'd each made, that we'd each made, and we clearly communicate boundaries to each other, that we nourish shared spiritual languages. And that we have made a choice for it to be okay that not okay things exist. Um, that has been foundational to our marriage. And we've been married for 32 years. And we would both tell you that our marriage is better than it's ever been. And I don't know that these things would have ever happened if I hadn't gone through my faith transition. Yeah. Uh, it's forced you to have to work through these things, work through these challenges and your differences. and. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes pain and struggle can make things stronger. It can. These things don't work for everyone. I my sense is that a mixed faith a faith crisis whether it's a mixed faith marriage or not, a faith crisis reveals the underlying marriage that was there. Yes. Uh that was tied together based on what the belief constructs were and once those beliefs constructs crumble then it reveals what the underlying marriage is yeah what foundation yeah including dysfunctions and things like that and sometimes that can result in putting in work so that the marriage is better and stronger and sometimes it results in a choice for one or both partners to end the marriage 
And sometimes that's a better thing for them too. Yeah. Um, but my sense, it is helpful to put in the work rather than to think, oh yeah, we have dysfunctions in our marriage, but that'll work itself out in the next life. We can just like ignore that stuff now. Right. And <laughs> yeah, that doesn't not a healthier or wise approach. No, no, eventually that catches up with people. Yeah. So the, these kinds of principles, shared spiritual languages, being okay with not okay things existed, existing, uh, those kinds of things, these principles apply to other mixed faith relationships. Yeah. So these things like siblings, friends, yeah, father and yeah. son, or yeah, mother, daughter, whatever it be. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Definitely, that's the case. I recently joined a book club locally, uh, and half of the men in the book club are believing members, and half are people like me. And uh, and those who are like me aren't in the angry stage or burn it down stage anymore. Like we've <laughs> gone through the deconstruction, we're reconstructing meaning. Um, but it's been really enjoyable to reconnect with some of these believing friends where we pick a, pick a book to read each month, and then we get together and talk about it. Uh, last month, we read the book, When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, uh, it's a really popular book about uh, a physician that got cancer and ended up dying and what his experience was going through all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so those were that was a really helpful question. And I, I think it's I, I want to do more things with my believing friends and family uh, where we're not talking about the weeds of the church, but where we're talking about yeah. the church thing. Because uh, and, and that can just cause more a fraction and division, uh, you know, between relationships. If all you talk about is your differences and you bring up issues with the church and they get defensive and it can it can cause bad feelings between each other and you know if people are somehow able to have dialogue have civil discussions listen with love to you know someone's issues and do it in a way that's not attack of those can be productive conversations but sometimes you need to respect boundaries of for example with um you know my wife just wouldn't be interested in some of the controversial things in church history like i am or the things that bother me wouldn't bother her and um, unless she asks after respect her boundaries where she's at and uh and vice versa she needs to respect uh that these things are important to me and i think yeah. you've talked about that as well yeah, how but they're happens. they're shared things though too that yeah. you can focus on right yeah focus on the commonalities focus on yeah the things that you both find spiritually valuable the the same uh morals and values that you still hold to and the things that you can do to grow and build together i've noticed that there's some ex-mormons um who can sometimes be in this phase of angry you know flippant attack of almost you know burn the church down and it seems like they might stay in that approach where they maybe don't find healing um what would be your your advice to them and of course people there's not maybe one right way to de reconstruct after a faith crisis but I can't help but think that staying in that anger phase, I kind of compare it to a bad breakup. You know, when you have a bad breakup, there's grief, you're hurt, you feel you feel betrayed, but staying in that heartbroken, betrayed mindset 
and feeling that way long term can't be good you almost have to heal from it and and i find that often you can look back and see like okay i can understand why i felt hurt and betrayal but i can also see that some of the good in it as the emotions have gone away yeah i mean that that's a pretty tough uh question because everybody's everybody's journey is a little bit different some people get continually re-wounded right yeah um maybe because of the way they're treated by friends and family or you know maybe any maybe they experience really significant trauma yeah um, yeah everyone's like, experiences are different the faith crisis is different yeah, it might trigger yeah. people more yeah than others. yeah so so when i i would say I would say to the person, I would say, uh, you know, anger, my understanding is anger is what burns the ground to prepare it for new growth. But eventually once the ground is burnt, it, it's time to start figuring out what's next. Um, but only the individual really is going to be able to figure out where that is in the process. You know, hopefully they're putting in work so that they're not re-traumatizing themselves, not re-wounding themselves, setting boundaries, you know, whatever they need to do. Uh, but I would, I would say a couple things. Number one is I would say the, the church is never going to go away. Yeah. There are always going to be people that are more fundamentalist, literalist type believing they're, they're going to be McConkie, Hinkley Packer Mormons forever, most likely, you know, hundreds of years at least. Um, and so, uh, and and there'll be nuanced members too. There'll be a spectrum. Um, but I, um, but I would say if if you spend your whole life trying to burn something down that will never burn down, and then you die, uh, uh, how how do you feel about that? Like at I some point, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I tried to burn. I, I tried to tear down a wall that I was never able to tear down. Like at some point in the process, maybe shifting your your energy towards something where at the end of your life you think, wow, I was really great. I was really grateful that I expended that amount of energy on that thing. Uh, you know, I, I think people should have contemplative reflection about those those kinds of things kinds of things and uh and so are there some people like you know mike norton uh, new name noah that does the videos and the temples and stuff like that like he he very well may spend his entire life trying to burn it down yeah it's like mocking belittling yeah um, yeah m- making fun just in a way to yeah. attack and um yeah j- hurt other people and and their beliefs yeah. i can understand you know, they see it as you know a, a cult we've been yeah. lied and deceptions yeah. and it, yeah the church deserves it well and the and the and the and the interesting thing is that the answer i think is both and like it's complex like there are people who were probably suicidal lgbtq people who or or some other thing that stumbled across a Mike Norton temple video and that led them to a faith transition so they didn't die by suicide 
you know, or something like yeah. that. So yeah. there are probably some circumstances where what Mike did like saved someone's life, maybe even literally. Um, but on the other hand, like if he spends his whole life doing that, uh, the church isn't going to go away. Um, my sense is that even, even if two dozen people in the church office building decided to violate their non-disclosure agreements and shared things about the internal workings of the church that would cause a lot of Mormons to have a shift in belief. There are a lot that it won't. And in a, and in the end, it's never going to go away. Yeah. Like it's so, it's so wealthy. It's never going to go away. But there, <laughs> there are people who receive benefits from their participation in the church sufficient that they they might never go through a faith transition and they'll always be believers of the church until the day they die. Yeah. And um so I I think I think that people just need to get reflect self-reflective on you know what are what what's the purpose of what they're doing? Are they processing grief and trauma? Are they establishing boundaries? Are they re-traumatizing themselves or submitting themselves to circumstances where they're re-traumatized. And at, at the end of your life or 10 or 20 years from now, when you look back and all the energy that you're going to allocate, like what, what are you going to be happy with? Like, cause if you spend that life trying to burn it down, it's not going to burn down. So do you, how good do you feel about expending all that energy to burn something down that's never gotten burned down? So that that's probably sounds point. it probably sounds flippant to people who are in the midst of it. Yeah, um, and and I would have been upset about it too because there I had a burn it down period of time. Um, but in, in the end, I I want to move forward. Like whether spirit is elevation motion or whether it's God or whether there's transcendent experiences that are just uniquely serendipitous or that there's a divine component in, in them. I, I want to strive to manifest those things in my life. Yeah. Um, and uh, I want to strive to that answer that I felt like I received on my mission, that the purpose of my life is to live with gratitude for the opportunity to participate in the lives of others. I want to do that. And, and so that's how I'm built. So that's what I'm doing. And I feel like it's helpful for each person to figure out, you know, what is their thing? What are they going to do? And I, yeah. I don't want to be super prescriptive. You know, I don't want to be prescriptive. I want people to decide for themselves what they're going to do post deconstruction. But if there was something that I would highly recommend, it's to strive to manifest the fruits of love, peace, joy, gratitude, grace, and connection transcendence in their life. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, what you said about it's very unproductive when you try to change the other person's mind to try to convince them uh, that never tends to go well. If anything, people dig and dig their heels in stronger into what they believe and somehow get in the stage where you can have just civil dialogue, empathy, understanding, compassion, almost like putting down your weapons of war for a minute and seeing each other as uh, you know human beings and, and listening with love and to understand even if you know you're not going to agree i think you know talking about disagreements talking about differences and concerns and issues i think they're important um but i think trying to find a way and i think 
with critics and apologists, believers and unbelievers, finding a way to have difficult conversations where you might disagree and might be controversial, but not being disagreeable, not being attack of uh it's something that's it's it's not easy especially when you know people's beliefs are sacred and very personal to them or or people's um issues and concerns bring a lot of betrayal and uh frustration and sadness uh but i think trying to find ways to build bridges not see each other as enemies and be able to understand each other i think is something that hopefully we can do better i think that's something that i took from President Nelson's talk as well. And I'm hoping that, you know, with individuals like you in the postmodern community, that you can be, I think, uh, you know, a good model of that, of respectful, kind, thoughtful dialogue, sharing your possessions and helping people to understand why people lose their faith, what was that like for them and and how we can still maintain loving relationships that don't have to break because somebody stops believing in the church or somebody doesn't share the same belief. And I feel like if we're especially we're trying to follow and apply the teachings of jesus i feel like it shouldn't have to break break our relationships yeah i mean i agree i think it takes some level of nuance and a belief in grace and uh you know because the literal believer is gonna say uh you know i've jeopardized my eternity you know my wife will get reassigned as a plural wife to some other man in the eternities Yes. Uh, and me expressing how my doubts or my concerns or how I've reconciled things is pulling people away from, you know, eternal life. Uh, and I can understand where they're coming from. Sure. Um, but if they can, if they can, if they can hold enough nuance, uh, maybe some epistemic humility as well to their own yeah, beliefs. Belief. And belief in grace that um, that God can work with people inside and outside of the church, that um, people can experience spirit and grow inside and outside of the church, and that we have a role to play. And that, you know, like in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, uh, you know, there's a reward uh, for all the workers that are working yeah. there. And, and, and it's, not, it's not our place, I think, to label malign to demonize you know label people as you know critics or as apostates you know they're deceived satan's got their heart i can understand a very fundamentalist orthodox view they may say well ultimately you know if the church is what it claims to be then you know that can't be god or whatever leading you out i can understand to an orthodox but I, i don't think it's our place to judge another person's journey and what they're going through and to just love them and be compassionate and try to listen with with kindness and still try to have mutual respect for each other and um yeah i think that's something that i feel like you know you've modeled to me i, I think this has been a good and productive conversation and discussion i've really enjoyed it and i hope that i can have more with different voices uh on this channel whether critical or apologist and that we can lay down our weapons of war and not see each other as enemies or that we're having to attack or try to debunk each other and see our our commonalities in a way yeah i i agree i'm on team murph there too um, <laughs> i i 
you know, when I went to college, uh, there was a lot of diversity of opinion. We'd have people come speak on all ends of the political and philosophical uh, spectrum. And we would go listen to them talk, you know, and, and I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's generational, but uh, we, I, I, I sense that we become much more divisive. Like yeah. we want to cancel people who say things that offend us or, you know, that vehemently disagree with us. Um, yeah. They, and, they have no credibility. Yeah. And, just dismiss them. And I think you should listen to the other voices, even voices that you might disagree with that might challenge your position. That's that can be healthy. It can, I, I think, think it can help you be more open minded. I think we need to lean in to relationships and conversations. I think we're better for it. Uh, but uh, we are in a precarious time, I think, because I think social media and online news and things like that and cable TV news have made political and religious discourse more divisive. Yeah, um, and contentious. So, yeah. So I think it's one one person at a time doing the kinds of things that you're doing uh, to, to lean into difficult conversations and nourish relationships and, and trust, you know, depending on the meaning that you attribute to God, trust that God is in the, the lives of his children, right? Not just the fraction of 1% who are active believing members of the church. Um, and for people who have lost belief or experience a shift of belief, to also hold some grace and nuance that there are people who are really fed by and thrive in their participation in the church. Um, and there are people for who the, whom the church works really well. Um, and to hold grace that, uh, you know, individuals overall seem to, unless they're like extreme narcissists, <laughs> overall individuals tend to be doing what they think is the right thing to do. I agree. I agree. Well, Anthony, this has been, uh, it's been so awesome, you know, having you on and for our interviews. Um, I've really enjoyed your, your thoughtful, uh, you know, theories and your thoughts on the Book of Mormon and, you know, this one on uh, just, you know, post having a faith crisis and navigating mixed faith relationships and civil dialogue between uh, critics and apologists and believers and non-believers and, um yeah, uh, thank you so much for for coming on and for your kindness, your humility. Uh, everyone, check out his uh, YouTube channel, Life After Deconstruction. I'll put some links in the description. Uh, and if you've enjoyed this video, please give it a thumbs up, like, share, and subscribe to my channel, Mormonism with the Murph. Uh, I'll see you next time on more content. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you.